before the reading, uh, just a brief word to let you know that uh, Reverend Goyer was uh, called away suddenly by the unexpected death of a very close friend of their family in Atlanta, and he was asked to do that uh, funeral service. A woman who was particularly meaningful to his daughters in the aftermath of their mother's sudden death. So it was very important for Steve to be there. And now let us listen to the word of God. It comes to us from uh, the fourth chapter of Matthew, and it comes in two parts. So here is the first part. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulon and Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the first part of the reading. Uh, Jesus leaves home, plants himself in a new community, and Matthew portrays Jesus in the line of the great prophets. He is like a a prophetic voice calling to repent. It's an implied criticism of the society, of their religious life, Repent, something must need to change. The status quo isn't okay. But there's also a word of promise. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So there is this critique and there is this good news coming from this prophetic figure, Jesus. And then the second half of the reading. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, with their father, mending their nets. And he called them, Jesus called them, and they immediately left their boat and the father and followed Jesus. And Jesus was going about in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread everywhere, and great multitudes followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So if you have been able to pull your eyes away from the Weather Channel any this weekend, um, where I think we're under Torcon 4 now or some some new invention, it's wonderful. Uh, But uh, you might have noticed there was an inauguration going on. um, And... uh, it harkened back to an inauguration 56 years ago when Robert Frost stood 
at the, at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy and read his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. It's a poem about a traveler in the woods who's going along a path. Maybe you've had this experience, going on a path, and all of a sudden there's a fork, and you thought you knew where you were going and where you were supposed to go, and all of a sudden you have a choice to make. And in the poem, the, the traveler is trying to see as far down the path as he or she can, but it kind of curves, and, and they just can't see really where it goes. And then the other way, the same. And so the traveler has to make a decision, and he ponders which road to take, and then there are these concluding lines spoken here at the point of decision, but imagining what he will say to himself much later on after this decision has long been made. He says this, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. This is how the Christian story begins, with, with a young man who decides one day to leave home and set out on an adventure, to go on a road less traveled. Matthew says simply that Jesus heard that his cousin John had been arrested, and so he withdrew to Galilee, and he left his hometown of Nazareth and created a new hometown in Capernaum. Now, it doesn't much say much about that, but think of the dynamics behind this simple statement. A young man, about 30 years old, realizes that his wild cousin has been arrested by the Romans. His life is in, in dire jeopardy. And now, here is this 30-year-old Jesus deciding that he's going to leave the work of the carpenter shop leave the responsibility of the care for his family and their care for him, leave his brothers and sisters and his mother, leave the business, the security of a regular income, and start out in a new place. It's just a small detail. And then the very next thing that happens is he calls these four fishermen to do the same thing. Walking along the shore, Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me, he says, and immediately they followed. Now, I don't know how most of you got to be where you are right now, but I would guess it's more the result of a long process of many hours of discernment, weighing various options, many decisions, maybe over several years. Maybe you're still in the midst of it. Maybe you're still trying to decide what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Maybe people are telling you what they think you should do or be, and you're trying to weigh all the advice. Maybe you're looking back on the path, the fork in the path, and the decisions you made a long time ago. It seems, though, likely for most of us that it's been a little more complicated than just simply, follow me, and they got up and left their nets and followed. 
So what I think the Bible is really talking about in this story is faith. The Bible says that faith is having an encounter with the Holy One. Hearing the voice of God, if you will, the call of Christ, and stepping out and following. It's not usually how we define faith, but it's always been there in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah are told to leave their homeland and go to a new place and get up and go, they did. They left all of their security and their family and moved. We are inclined as children of the Enlightenment to look at faith intellectually. It's a, it's a list of ideas that we believe to be true. In a recent interview, Barbara Brown Taylor observed that she has been brought up with the definition of faith as adherence to a set of beliefs. But now, she says, she is redefining faith as an openness to the truth, whatever that truth is. If faith is merely adherence to a set of beliefs, then it is easy for us to draw the line around who is in and who is out. If faith is merely an adherence to a set of beliefs, we can struggle all our lives and try to set ourselves to the challenge of finally working our way to acceptance of the list of, of ideas and truths. If faith is simply adherence to a list of beliefs, we might tell ourselves, I just can't go with that anymore. I can't be in church anymore because I can't, can't sign off on all those things. For centuries, we've been using this idea of faith to fight ourselves and each other and those outside. And I don't mean to denigrate theology. I don't want to say it's not important to have some essential tenets. But we need to remember that it all begins not with a set of beliefs, but with a voice, with an encounter that says, Come and be with me. Follow me. It begins not with a theological test, but with an invitation to do something. Like you, I wish we knew a lot more about Andrew and Simon and, and James and John. I wonder if they had ever met Jesus before. I wonder if Jesus had been... Um, operating some small groups in the area. Maybe they saw them at the fish market. Uh, maybe they were restless in life. Maybe they were bored with their job. Maybe they, James and John didn't like working for their dad. Who knows what was going on? All we are told is that uh, the decision is just they left their nets and they followed. Most of us, we... We make such decisions after a lot of struggle and maybe doubt. But for them, faith begins when they hear a voice, they have an encounter, and they make a decision to get up and go. 
Now, I'd like to point out two things about this. The first is that when Jesus went and made uh, this, this visit to the shoreline, he chose some really ordinary people. I mean, people like us. I mean, people that are not particularly religious, who didn't go around, you know, with little angel wings on their shoulders all day. They were just regular guys trying to pull fish from the water, trying to make a buck. There's nothing in the story that says they were religious seekers, that they were praying or anything like that, that they were particularly moral or particularly gifted. They were just ordinary people. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind for ourselves. The second thing about the story is that no self-respecting rabbi would ever have gone out and recruited followers. They just didn't do that. The followers would come to the rabbi and submit an application. And the rabbi would screen the applicants and decide who would be worthy, who he would want to follow him, to be in his school promising students only. But not here. In this story, we see Jesus, the rabbi, going out and casting a wide net and inviting people to come. It's really an image of the scandalous generosity of the gospel that leaves the security of heaven and comes to earth to reach out to the world. Sometimes we may think that our religious faith is based on our search for God, but what we see here is that God takes the initiative. Jesus is the one who comes. God creates the need, the hunger, the thirst for truth and authenticity, There's like a God-sized hole, as someone has said, deep in the heart of every one of us. Michael Linval, who wrote this wonderful little book called The Geography of God, says people speculate about the search for God as if the transcendent one were a misplaced set of keys. Anyone misplace their keys? Every day. The awkward truth is that we it is that we who have, who have misplaced ourselves. Taylor comments on the story and says, this little story in Matthew is not even really about us. This is a story about God, God's ability, not only to call us, but to create us as a people who are capable of following. He walks right up to these unpromising fishermen and works a miracle, creating faith where there has not been faith, creating disciples where there has been no disciples. Just as he went up to a leper and touched the leper and said, be clean, or put some mud on a blind man's eye and said, now you can see, or raised the paralyzed man and said, pick up your mat and go home, just With that power, that authority, Jesus calls people to follow and changes their lives. 
It's about being swept into the flow of God's will and giving ourselves to it. Now, to be sure, there is something for us to do in this relationship. Being faithful to God entails reevaluating and rearranging our constellation of loyalties. H. Richard Niebuhr addressed this, and he said, this state of affairs in which people have multiple separate loyalties, he called polytheism. Think about all the things that are important to us, the things that, that command our loyalty, our, our families, our work, our reputation, our finances, our health, our social involvement, our belief system, all the different loyalties that we have chosen. And Niebuhr says that faithfulness to God cannot be one among many loyalties. It must be capable of integrating all of these other loyalties. He called such faith radical monotheism. So it is only when we see all of our relationships in light of this call, this faith that we have what is called integrity. Integrity, that sense that everything lines up with Christ at the, at the center. When the fishermen were asked by Jesus to join him in ministry, just as when Abraham and Sarah were invited to leave their home and go to a new home, they were asked to take a great risk to give up a lot so that their lives might be changed forever. They were called to integrate God's work into the collection of loyalties that they had made at that point. So what about us? God maybe comes to us. Have you ever heard a voice felt an urging, wondered if God wanted you to do something, say something? Some have been called and maybe needed to leave home, needed to go away to school, needed to go take a job somewhere. Some may have needed to leave their neighborhood and get into a recovery program or go and join the armed forces. Some have been called and need to stay home and continue doing what they are doing, going to work, taking care of their business, taking care of their children, cooking the meals, changing diapers. But all of us are called I think all of us are, to a new place, a new way of life, new values informed by the justice and hope and love that we see demonstrated in Christ, living in his name and for the sake of others. That's what it means to be fishers of people. I'm going to read just a little excerpt from our book of order. The church is the body of Christ, both in its corporate life 
and in the lives of each individual members and is called to give shape and substance to this truth. That means we are called to incarnate, to enflesh, to act out the truth that God in Christ is here, is in this world. We're called to tell the good news and to say that the new age has dawned and that God reconciles brokenness, brokenness and makes all things new. The church is called to do this, even at risk to its own life, trusting in God alone as the author and giver of life, sharing the gospel and doing deeds in the world that point beyond themselves to the new reality in Christ. The possibilities for our callings seem endless. Sometimes they'll be big, maybe some small ones, but it would be a mistake probably to focus too much on ourselves in all of this. The God who calls us can be counted on to create us as people who are able to follow. We need to trust that whenever and however our wills spill into the will of God, time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand.